You're listening to the Insights at Work podcast, one of North America's top HR resources. We look at what's happening in the HR world, take your questions and study the research to help HR experts move forward. It's prepared by HR experts for HR experts. In today's episode, we're talking about career mapping. And if you're like me, you might be picturing a treasure map with a big red X that marks the spot of your future dream job. But unfortunately, in the real world, things aren't that easy. Not to worry though, we're here to help you navigate the rocky waters of recruiting and hopefully avoid any career shipwrecks. Put on your captain's hat and grab your compass. We're about to set sail on this episode of the Insights at Work podcast. All aboard! Uh, Jeff, that's a train whistle. Oh, sorry. That's better. Let's dive in. at the Insights at Work podcast, just like in HR, we're all about being potentiators, providing insight and helping others create even greater achievements than they might have on their own. After all, one plus one equals three. And coming from someone who barely scraped by first year calculus, that sounds pretty accurate to me. Today, I'm joined by Ginny Clark, a fellow potentiator, former director of executive recruiting at Google, a keynote speaker, author of the book, Career Mapping, Charting Your Course in the New World of Work, and host of the Fifth Dimensional Leadership Podcast. In fact, I don't think this lady even sleeps. Welcome to the Insights at Work Podcast, Ginny Clark. Thank you, Jeff. Delighted to be with you. Ginny, for those listening who might not have seen or heard your podcast, why don't you fill them in a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'll try to give the short version because I've got a lot of years behind me and I want to believe a lot more in front of me. But I started my career out of business school in banking and then commercial real estate, banking with Chase. And then I intentionally decided to become an executive recruiter and sought to do that. Um, I joined a firm called Spencer Stewart. They're a global, one of the largest global executive search firms. Uh, I was there for 12 years. I became a partner. And then I left to write the book Career Mapping and was with a Canadian firm called Knightsbridge Human Capital Solutions for a couple of years. They sold. And when they sold, one of my colleagues went to Google. A couple months in, he called me. I joined him at Google in my home state of California and learned a lot along the way, which I'm sure we'll get to talking about. And then right before I left Google, I started the podcast. So I love talking about career, talent, leadership, all that stuff. That's what I'm about. Well, between the book and the amazing work that you did at Google and what you spoke about since launching the podcast, all 75 episodes, we've got a ton of great stuff to talk about today. Now, I just finished your book, Career Mapping, and one of the stories in it that left the biggest impact on me was how you got the idea to put pen to paper. And like so many of us, that inspiration came from family. Let's start with the event that prompted you to develop the concept around career mapping. <clears throat> there were a couple. I think the one you're referring to is my grandfather. I thought it was your dad's post-it notes. Oh, <laughs> you're, you're right. That, that had an impact. 
after he passed away in 1993, my mother shared a folder with me and it had all of these assorted things in it. It had articles that had been written about me, post-it notes from our conversations every single Sunday morning. And so that's, it. my dad was an inspiration. He was just one of my guides and my coaches throughout life. And so that, that was part of what spawned it. The other piece though, was that I didn't write about because I think it dawned on me after I had gotten the book published, was that my grandfather, whom I never met, this was on my mother's side, he walked from, he was a grandson of a slave, walked from Georgia to Tuskegee University in Alabama to learn under George Washington Garber and Booker T. Washington. And he put all six kids through Tuskegee University on his own. And he wrote a book called uh, The Movable School Goes to the Negro Farmer because he worked for the US Department of Agriculture and he taught former slaves how to work the land. I mean, he was just this amazing, iconic man in my in my world, right? But I never actually met him. So it dawned on me that we were the only two in the entire Clark Campbell family that had written books. And so it was a nod to him posthumously. Yeah. Well, you do mention in the book about him walking uh, all that way and then him leaving such a legacy. But yeah. that sounds amazing. And two authors in the family. That's right. And you also yeah. talk about how your father would call you every Sunday, no matter Sunday. what, no matter what time zone he was in or you were in. That's and right. he actually kept notes about mm -hmm. what you talked about and what was important to you. Yeah. Like how impactful is that? I mean, it's, it was one of the greatest gifts that anybody could receive because I consider my dad an amazing leader. He was a black man born in the early 1900s, believe it or not. He was in his 40s when um, he married my mom. So he was an older dad. I mean, he looked, he had gray hair when all the other kids' parents didn't, you know, but that didn't bother me because he was the coolest dad ever in that he was confident. He didn't have to try. He knew how to listen. And as someone who was effectively a prison warden, um, you know, he was in a leadership role. He had to manage not only the inmates, he had to manage the, the staff. So those those kinds of imprints early in life, they stay with you. You talk about it a lot in the book about being authentic. And it sounds like you got a lot of that from him. Yeah, I didn't have a strong need for validation per se. You know, it wasn't as much that I needed to be liked, but I just never, my parents also impressed upon us, listen, you're no better or worse than anybody. What's interesting is that authenticity and being purposeful in what you want yeah. comes through as this solid theme throughout the book. Mm -hmm. And it definitely sounds like that was part of the strong foundation that he was building for you and your family. No question. The whole point of career mapping is being very intentional. It makes perfect sense. Yes. And it sounds ideal to those of us planning our career path. But at mm -hmm. the end of the day, not many of us sit back or even have the luxury to consider our strengths and our passions and dedicate the time to identify the industry, the role, and the company we want to work at. After reading your book, I think you offer this great structure to follow that's going to help me and help our listeners be the master of our own destiny. Mm -hmm. Ginny, what's career mapping? Um, career mapping is a framework. And it's so funny, Jeff, because it wasn't until I was almost halfway through the book that I was 
laying it out, I had come up with a literal framework, boxes, right? A map to lay out all of these different elements of your past, the historical aspect, and then the aspirational piece. Where are you? Where do you think you want to go? Because people just kind of go, well, that's what I've done. So this is where I have to go. I'm like, well, first of all, that's faulty thinking. And then I realized that I was mimicking the executive search process. So creating this discipline that determines what you want to do, yeah. what you're capable of doing and where you want to do it makes perfect sense. And consciously choosing those specific companies where you believe you can be valued and satisfied working at is going to hopefully get you the job that you want. Yes. i never forget. Somebody called me once and said, I'm thinking about getting back in the job market. What's out there? And I just was like, what are you talking about? What's out there? What Anything do you want? you want is out there, right? And I am this executive recruiters are not like a multiple listing service. I don't know all of the jobs, right? I only know the ones that we've contracted with the employers to assist in filling. There are infinitely more jobs that are even put on all those job sites, right? If you go directly to the company, sometimes they're not always posting. And if you're leveraging relationships inside of there, people can tip you off that here comes something that isn't out there yet. You'll ask your clients, hey, what's your dream job? A lot of us when we look at what our career path is, it's like this pyramid and we're thinking we're working towards this dream job mm -hmm. and that's going to be like the big last job that I land. But in reality, it's not like that. The typical career journey looks like, and you describe it as you're like hiking up and hiking down different mountains and you're yeah. seeing different vistas. Absolutely. Let's hope so. At least that's what I want. I, I feel for those people and I, I'm not judging. Please understand. There are people who went to school to be a whatever, right? And that's what they're doing. And they've done it for the entirety of their career. I hope they've been happy and fulfilled in doing that. And many people have been. Most people I know, <laughs> um, and myself included, you know, I changed paths multiple times. And some of it was because I was curious. There was stuff I didn't know growing up, and I don't think anybody knows everything about all of the possible roles and sectors that one can go into, and not to mention the fact that as you mature, you change. Your interests change, your capabilities change. All of these things start to evolve and develop that you didn't even know you were capable of. So why not leverage those and do something that even brings you joy? A dream job starts with a dream. And that resonated with me because it mm. underlines how important it is to focus on what you want and where you want to do those things. Ginny, tell me more about the conversations you have where you're helping guide people to save time and get them into that dream job sooner. Well, you know, it's really about kind of saying it's it's being able to listen and and actually in many cases being kind of a mirror so that people can hear themselves saying things that they've never said to themselves before. Because I'm not going to tell you what you're supposed to do. And it's amazing how many people kind of think that that's what I'm going to do. Or I'm going to hand them a job and say, here, this is the perfect job. How the heck should I know what the perfect job for them is? You know, and you're not who you were even two years ago. So I, the conversation was a, a lot of more questions than responses. If you want that, then why not this? That's, that's actually quite adjacent to that. It's not far off. And then you learn how to speak your narrative 
to whichever organization you learn how to write a resume, the resume is secondary to me, to the narrative. It's what you're saying that's compelling. And that's something that I learned for myself as I moved across these different industries and sectors and companies. Jeff, if I may, I want to clarify some language too, because I think I use the word competencies a lot. And I think people think that they're just the same as skills. And I think they're different. So I have two definitions I'd like to offer you and your listening audience, if I may. The first one is, and I say this in my speeches all the time, because I don't think people appreciate it. Um, Competencies are skills plus knowledge plus ability. Because you can, somebody can teach you a skill, whether it's running a machine or creating a spreadsheet, whatever that is. Do you have the knowledge of the system of which you're a part? Do you have the ability, mental, physical, emotional ability to actually do it and even adjust how it's done in the moment? Because I often say, and I'm pretty, I don't know if I really was this bold in the, in the book, but come on, I know a lot of people who have amazing pedigrees who are not necessarily competent. At least they might not be competent either functionally or usually it's one or the other. They might have great leadership competencies, which are different from functional competencies. Another way I think of competencies is, and this is the one that I created, it's it's how you do something. It's the deconstructed elements of how you do something. So people say, well, I've only worked in this industry. I don't care. Tell me what you did and importantly, how you did it. Break that down for me. So you ran a team of marketers. Walk me through how you did that. How did you lead them? What inputs were you getting? What was the level of interaction? Who were you interfacing with? Who were the big decision makers? Break it down such that now I understand that you're a strategist. Take out the word marketing and now here's all this other capability that can be applied to a completely different function. And people don't seem to think that way. They're like, well, this is what I've done and this is what I got to do. And that's sad to me. When you have a skill set, you can move from one industry to another. You can. Yes. Yes. If you're a video maker, you just don't have to focus on videos about cats. You could focus on videos about dogs. Yeah. It's the technical aspect of how you manage that thing or that, that set of equipment or whatever it is that you do. Yes. So talking about the narrative, having that brand in the business world is critical. And whether we like to think of ourselves as a brand or not, at the end of the day, it's important to earn the trust of anyone we deal with. Yeah. In the world of executive recruiting, you mentioned that the brand is made up of four components, authenticity, reputation, image, and value. What's the most important trait that someone should focus on? Yeah, that's a hard one. Um, I think the, I, I think it's the value actually. And I was struggling between if there's one, if I only get one, I'm going to go with value because I think the author, I started to go with authenticity, but I think you will, your value will be that much greater if you are showing up as authentic. So I'm staying with value. Well, yeah. and, and the value could really be authenticity, s- skills. Yes. 
your brand wrapped into one because you're bringing all of that to your new employer. That's right. So you've got this podcast, 75 episodes in, and it's called Fifth Dimensional Leadership. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit about it and why you decided to do it? Sure. Um, I, it was not on my radar. And I used to do a lot of speaking inside of Google. Word got out that I had this book. And so I, I made the time to do it. I thought it was a good investment into the company that I worked for. And so we ultimately landed on um, the leadership discussion and the fifth dimension. I'm, I consider myself to be deeply spiritual. I meditate regularly. I've worked with a, a healer for decades. And the fifth dimension, if, if for those who follow metaphysics and believe in some of this stuff, um, is where it's love-based. It's um, soul-based. And I just think that we need much more awareness and consciousness among our leaders. And that will change how we do business, whatever sector that we're in. I say business loosely. However, we do whatever it is that we do. The five dimensions are know yourself, speak your truth, inspire love, expand consciousness, and activate mastery. And I think that those five things really speak to who a leader should attempt to be as they are developing, you know, some of the other characteristics and the other functional competencies, instead of focusing on the, what have you done? I don't care as much about that as I care about who you are, because that will inform how you do whatever it is that you're going to do. Do you think since we got hit by the pandemic that the five dimensions of leadership has become less or more important in a leader? Way more important, way more important. I mean, we started, I don't remember exactly when it was, but as you know, we're in the pandemic and remote work was the only way to get work done. Um, It became apparent that we needed leaders, people who had empathy, who could connect on a human level. And I'll go so far as to say, I think that's why this happened. I'm a believer that everything happens for a reason. I I might not always know or understand the reason, but I think that's what it is. And I think that this is why we had COVID so that we could begin to find our humanity again. Now we have short memories, but I think we'll just keep getting smacked until we um, start addressing these things. And so I'm a bit of an evangelist when I'm doing my speeches and I've done, I think 70, something like 75 in the last couple of years, you know, the audience that I'm speaking to, I talk about this. I talk about conscious leadership and how I think that is going to help change the world. And we need to own what's happening around us. We can't say, well, they're doing this. Well, they are you, right? There are people making those decisions. How are you going to hold them accountable for such decisions? Somebody can be called a leader, but they're not a leader. You've had Rich Divini on your podcast, and he has a line that goes, you know what? They might be a leader, but people wouldn't follow that person out like a burning building. Yeah. He also says, you don't get to call yourself a leader. It's like calling yourself funny. He was wonderful. Man, I, I just loved having him. He said, Jeff, you never know who a Navy SEAL is. They could be working at ADP right beside you. And then I said, so Rich, does that mean that I still have a shot? And he's like, 
Absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, maybe in the movies. And I'm like, Rich, I doubt it's even in the movies I have a shot. He was honest. We respect that. I think being vulnerable and showing that vulnerability and being authentic, I think that's the quickest way that you get your team to support you because they see that you're just like them and you have faults and you own up to them and you've got that accountability. And I think that's the quickest way to make big wins in leadership. No question. People, trust is waning. We've got a lot of toxic workplaces um, where, you know, the young, young folks, we've got different generations who are looking for different kinds of treatment. And I think it's, it's fine to expect to be treated with respect and to have leaders who care about you. That's not, that shouldn't be too much to ask. That's what I watched my father do. You know, he was tough, but he cared. And I think we've gotten away from that in, in probably in the name of chasing shareholder value, which is sad. I couldn't wrap up the podcast without asking about your time at Google. Yeah. Google is often perceived from the outside of having a great culture that is progressive in many ways, both in terms of employee benefits and DEI. Now mm-hmm. you've been under the hood of Google. Can you share some insights with us about the positives and the challenges around Google's culture? Yeah. Culture is many things. Um, one of the things that I, leaving Google, I kind of said, you know, I think they their, their reputation and their brand is one thing. I think their culture is another. And in an organization that large, you're going to find micro cultures that are healthier than others, right? So it's hard to say for what's now, when I was there, it was around 120,000. Now it's more like 170, 75 or 80, I don't know, 180,000. Um, it's hard to say that something that big has a singular culture. So I think that needs to be well understood. Their brand is ubiquitous. Some of the smartest people I ever met in my life. I don't think that and this, uh, most companies do this, I don't think they always assess and incentivize leadership behaviors. And that's why I'm so, as a recruiter, that's, that's what I look for in people, right? You can be brilliant, but if you're not an effective leader, I, you shouldn't be in that role, right? There are leaders and there are people sitting in leadership positions, two different things, okay? And so I think Google, because they're, with good reason, I understand how it happened. It's a young company, 25 years old. What is what is IBM, like 100 and something, right? By contrast. And so you've got these young startup guys with a great idea and they would say, look, we're, we're not corporate. We're, we don't want to be that. Well, at some point, we need whatever the number is, but you're no longer counting the number of employees. I mean, I knew people who said I was employee number 57. Okay. At some point, you, you're not going to count. <clears throat> then you need to have some processes, some standards, some levels of accountability that are going to ensure that the culture is upheld. And I'm not sure they did that successfully. A lot of companies don't when they get to that scale, but I think that's because they they weren't oriented that way. 
So the, the good part was I met amazing, some truly remarkable people at all levels, not because I, because I did all this speaking, I got to meet a lot of young folks. I hired a lot of young people onto my, I had three separate teams concurrently. And so I was really impressed with the caliber of people that are attracted to Google. Um, but I also think they need to make sure that as they mature, that they are holding themselves. And I think a lot of companies are, you know, when you're printing money, basically, it's kind of easy to just be fast and lose. And now I think a lot of these big tech companies in particular are having to rein it in and build in some of these accountabilities for the good of all, right? It's not just about shareholder value. It's about you want to attract, keep attracting the best talent. You need to learn how to treat them, which means probably holding a lot of leaders to a higher level of accountability. Well, you talked about IBM and IBM, certainly they've been around a long time and they've seen the ups and the downs. Yeah. And with Google only being around 25 years, they probably, they don't have the same approach to succession as a more established company would. No. And Silicon Valley itself was a bit of a club. I'm sure that doesn't come as a surprise, right? I mean, once you were kind of out there, you knew everybody. And so people would move. And I was vocal about that because I was in part responsible for diversity um, in executive recruiting. That's one right. of the reasons they hired me. And so I would say, listen, you want greater diversity, then expand your scope. You're a global company. Why aren't you looking across the pond? You've got offices all over the world. Why are you not tapping into some of that both internal talent and external talent versus just calling up your buddy who's, you know, just left Meta and seeing if they want to come over. That's not recruiting. And that's not finding the best person at the right time for the role based on the business need. And getting a different cultural perspective. Big time. That That's what, and, and that's what, you know, you end up with this, um, this exclusive um, homogeneous mindset um, that that can be detrimental. It, I think it's proven to be in a lot of organizations over the years, not just you know, not just businesses, but all sectors. So I love talking about Google, and I love talking about the methodology and the purposefulness behind mapping one's career. Is there mm -hmm. anything impactful that we haven't covered today that you'd like to highlight, Jenny? You know, I I just think part of what I said before, which is we we need, and the reason I created these five dimensions once again is because I think we need this other element to balance us out as individuals inside of our companies. And I think we're often looking for someone or something to happen outside of our, our own being to make it change, whether it's in our society and looking at government, whether it's inside the company and looking to leadership, we can speak up and say something when we don't agree, when we think that there's hypocrisy or inconsistencies in what the company's values say they are and how someone's showing up. You don't wait for someone to be anointed and come in and change it. You change it. Well, great way to wrap up the Insights at Work podcast. But before I let you go, we do this with every guest. We ask them for a list of favorites and firsts. Are you ready, Jenny Clark? Yeah. Jenny Clark, what was your first job? I was a bag girl in a market basket, a Kroger company. Bag you know, groceries. Yes. That is 
that is very common amongst our guests. Is it really? It is. I had no idea. What was your first concert? I remember this. I was 16 and it was Diana Ross at the Hollywood Bowl. Wow. Yeah. And and the Commodores were her opening act and they had lost their um, luggage. So they performed in jeans. <laughs> what was your favorite concert? Oh, I'm not an enormous concert goer, but let me think. Um, you know, this is going to sound really, it was a small, at a small venue called Park Hyatt, uh, or rather Park West here in Chicago. And it was a singer, a sort of a folk singer from the eighties named Phoebe Snow. That was my favorite. Cool. Yeah. What was your first car? Volkswagen Beetle bug. And it was a automatic stick. It was weird. So it, it had, it, you shifted gears, but it didn't have a clutch. Go figure. Yeah. A Volkswagen Beetle was my first car too. <laughs> a baby blue 1973 uh-huh. Volkswagen Beetle. I love it. Jenny, what's your favorite piece of advice that you give to a young professional just starting out? I give them the advice that my father gave me, which is tell people what you want, which means that you need to know. <laughs> and a lot of people don't know what they want. They're just kind of showing up and waiting to see what somebody's going to tell them. You tell them. Jenny Clark, thank you so much. This has been just an absolute pleasure. It has been great having you on the Insights at Work podcast. What a delight. Thank you so much, Jeff. You're wonderful. And with that, it looks like we've run out of racetrack. Thanks so much for listening to the episode. If you've enjoyed it, please share it with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit from it as well. If you find the Insights at Work podcast worthy, please go on to iTunes and give us a cool rating with a nice review. We certainly appreciate it. And if there's something that you would like me to discuss around this big world of HR and all things business, give me a shout. You know how to reach me on social media or through LinkedIn. In the meantime, stay healthy and be kind. We'll see you soon on the next episode of the Insights at Work podcast. <laughs>